When drummer Antonio Sanchez released his album Bad Ombre back in 2017, he was responding to a few events that took place in his world at the same time. On a political level, the music was a response to the racism of the Trump campaign against Mexicans. In fact, the title of the record, Bad Hombre, seemed to be an answer to Trump's assertion that a wall needed to be built at the U.S.-Mexican border in order to get all the bad hombres, as he called them, out of the U.S. An immigrant from Mexico himself, Sanchez reappropriated the phrase. It seemed, in fact, to be a perfect fit for him because not only did it work as a form of resistance, by using the term, he made his feelings clear without having to say too much about it. But it also borrowed from the jazz vernacular. You know, when musicians really respect someone, they'll often refer to them as a bad man or a bad mofo. And in that context, Antonio Sanchez is definitely a bad hombre. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Sanchez moved to the U.S. in his early 20s from his native Mexico to attend the Berklee College of Music and then the New England Conservatory. One of his teachers, the Panamanian-born Danilo Perez, was a supporter, and their work together was one of the early launch pads for Antonio. While he was playing with Danilo, the guitarist Pat Metheny heard him, which led to a musical relationship that's been at the center of Antonio's life for 20 years. Sanchez went on to become one of the most sought-after drummers on the international jazz scene. He's worked with artists like Gary Burton, Chick Corea, Michael Brecker, and Charlie Hayden. He's won four Grammys. He's been named Modern Drummer's Jazz Drummer of the Year three times. He's been on the covers of Downbeat, Jazz Times, Jazz Is, Modern Drummer, Drum, and Music Pro, among others. So, yeah, he's made his mark. And certainly among drummers, just invoking the name Antonio Sanchez implies so much a sound, an approach, a discipline, precision, creativity, professionalism. You know, as a drummer, it's quite an accomplishment to be able to play four bars of solo drums and have it be recognizable right away. Can you do it? Can you identify this drummer? Or this one? Or this? Who's this? Or this? Or this? Who do you think this is? What about this? That's Antonio. Antonio Sanchez is that kind of drummer. And he talked from early on about how he thought about drumming, particularly soloing, as a form of storytelling. So it was only a matter of time before some great storyteller would find a way to use Antonio Sanchez's drums to help tell a larger story. And that's exactly what happened with Mexican film director Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu when he asked Antonio to do a drum score, all drums, for his film Birdman. Birdman went on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, along with Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography in 2014. And the score earned a Golden Globe nomination for Best Original Score and a BAFTA nomination for Antonio. He won a Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack and a Critics' Choice Award for Best Score. 
and the Satellite Award for Best Original Score, so it really changed his life. But as significant as the awards and the accolades were, maybe more significant was that the sound of Antonio's drumming truly entered the zeitgeist after Birdman. And although he hadn't planned for it to turn out that way, he started to realize that the level of expectation, of curiosity, even a pressure on him to follow up Birdman with something equally resonant, had risen. So when in 2017 Antonio went into his newly built home studio to record Bad Ombre, he had a lot of psychic energy stored up and ready to use. He made an entirely instrumental record, a solo record, where he played all the instruments and did what has now become his trademark production work of mixing drones and samples and synths and programming and live drumming. In fact, the only musical collaborator on the record was his 90-something-year-old grandfather, the Mexican actor Ignacio Lopez Tarso, who appeared on the first track. Five years, one pandemic, a few political cycles, and a handful of other projects later, he's back this year with Shift, Bad Hombre Volume 2. This time, the list of collaborators is a bit longer. See, somewhere in the dense fog of the pandemic, Sanchez decided to ask some of his favorite singers and songwriters for material he could deconstruct and reimagine. The result features Dave Matthews, Pat Matheny, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, Michelle Indigiocello, Leela Downs, Rodrigo y Gabriela, Kimbra, Anna Tijoux, Becca Stevens, Silvana Estrada, Mauro, Tana Alexa, who is also his wife, and Sonica, joining Sanchez in this collaborative experiment. The idea of shifting might not only apply to the songs on Bad Hombre, but also to a change in Antonio's approach. In the first Bad Hombre release, he was extremely political. Over the years, his outrage and his fury with Trump and the turmoil at the U.S.-Mexican border muted, and Sanchez himself shifted how he thinks about what he does and where he wants to go next. We talked recently about that search, the same one that started back in Mexico when he was a competitive gymnast, classical pianist, and aspiring rock drummer, and brought him all the way to where he is today the bad hombre. Antonio Sanchez plays Yamaha drums, Remo drum heads, and Zildjian cymbals and sticks, as well as LP percussion exclusively. He's very clear about that. But when I'm looking for some new sounds on the drums, I will often find myself walking down to a warehouse in the boho hipster industrial corridor of Gowanus, Brooklyn, up to Jonathan Singer's Third Floor Percussion Bazaar. I go in person because it's close, but in fact, the Percussion Bazaar is available wherever you are because it's really an online store. In fact, I would caution that if you're going to go in person, you should do so at your own risk. Yeah. <laughs> On a recent afternoon, I stopped in to pick up some drum hardware and a few new drum effects for a TV score that I'm playing on. Sounds that I could get? What kind of things do we have in here? We got sounds. I first learned about Jonathan years ago when the drummer Bill Campbell came to my house to record drums on something, and he had these great old hi-hats. I said, where do you even find old hats like that? And he said, oh, well, you've got to call John Singer. Back then, John was operating out of his apartment, and the percussion sales business was a kind of side hustle for him while he focused on his real passions of, no joke, playing tabla and playing xylophone. That's the situation. Oh. 
Eventually, the business grew, and Jonathan chose the totally unoriginal name Third Floor Bazaar for his business. I'm quite sure he stole it from the name of this podcast, which is The Third Story. And it must be recognized that they sound similar, but they are not the same. He is The Third Floor Bazaar. I am simply the elegant Third Story. John's demeanor seems to suggest that he didn't mean for any of this to happen. He's as surprised as anyone else that he's become one of the greatest percussion dealers in the country and certainly one of the most entertaining. It's going okay. Better than anything else I've done as far as, you know, making a living. But don't be fooled by his Aushuk's personality. The third floor, bizarre, is the real thing. Recently, he even started importing all kinds of items from abroad, straight to Brooklyn. No middleman, no distributor, so he can pass on those savings to you. I get the stuff from all over now. Um, we just got a bunch of sticks from this German company that's been around since the 19th century. And, you know, it's exciting. Yeah, that kind of stuff, bringing things that people don't know about here. For longtime listeners of the podcast, you may have noticed that we just slipped into the first ever advertisement in the history of this show. After nearly nine years without a single piece of sponsored content, it's happening to you and me, us, together, right now. So listen, if you're looking for some new sounds, cymbals, gongs, frame drums, a vintage drum kit, snares, a kalimba, vibraphone, xylophone, maybe a cuica, what about this thing? What does that thing do? How about these chimes? Get yourself over to thirdfloorbazaar.com. T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-B-A-Z-A-A-R, thirdfloorbazaar.com. And if it's your first time, put in the code THIRDSTORYPOD. Spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-S-T-O-R-Y-P-O-D, for free shipping on your first order. This is great stuff. Did we make it through that? Everybody survive? The Third Story Podcast is made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to check out all their award-winning content. Check out third-story.com to visit the full archive, hundreds of deep-diving long-form conversations with creators, including Antonio's bad ombre collaborators Rodrigo y Gabriela and Becca Stevens, as well as previous episodes with drummers like, you ready for this? Bill Stewart, Clyde Stubblefield, Steve Gadd, Nate Smith, Nate Wood, Tyshawn Sorry, Billy Martin, Dave King, Micaiah McRaven, Michael Bland, Eric Harlan, Casa Overall, Lewis Cole, Lewis Cato, Mark Juliana, and there are some more. Go find out for yourself at third-story.com. Then it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to subdivide some of your pocket change. Here's me and the great Antonio Sanchez talking it down. Man, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and, and I feel like... Uh, you know, whenever the time is, it's right. You know, we're talking today because of Bad Ombre, Volume 2. But, you know, I mean, your your journey is long and still evolving. So, I mean, I would love to talk about a little bit of all of it. Yeah, sure. Whatever you want to talk about, man. I'm game. Well, why don't we talk about the record first? People who have been following you maybe won't be totally surprised by the sound of this record, but there is a little sense of a departure both in the kinds of collaborators that you're working with, the sonic universe that you're in, even the music. I'm not sure that there is a genre or a, a label that would apply to this music overall. I mean, it, it encapsulates a lot, a lot of elements. Yeah. And it, it, now that the Grammy nominations just came out, I realized that was one of the problems <laughs> with this record. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of uh, everything at the same time, which I love. I mean, that's exactly what I was going for. 
you know, I was uh, trying to draw a straight line through a bunch of completely unrelated material. And I chose those artists for many reasons, but one of them was because I knew it was going to be a huge challenge to kind of put it all together and kind of try to make it uh, sound concise. You know, when you went from one tune to the next, like, okay, the first tune is Dave Matthews with Pat Metheny, and the second one is, is Anna Tiju rapping in Spanish. You know, it, it just doesn't make any sense on paper, you know. But so I was trying to make it have some kind of uh, uh, direction. And I, and I tried to do that with the drums, obviously, with the production. And uh, by, by me playing all the instruments with, uh, with the sonic direction in general. And I asked this particular set of artists because uh, they're all great storytellers you know and I'm, I'm a sucker for for a good story where it's a book or a movie or a drum solo or a, a song you know i just love when people can can say so much in such a short amount of time mm -hmm. and a lot of things that are important to me um, like you know human rights and social justice uh women's rights uh, the disappearance of women in Mexico, you know, uh, all these artists have some to say about all of those things. And some of the of the songs on the record ended up being incredibly poignant stories that we can go into um, with a little bit more depth. Yeah, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because the narrative around the first Bad Ombre record was that it was fueled by a kind of outrage and anger that you were feeling in the Trump environment, the build the wall, the bad, a lot of bad hombres coming over from the other side. I mean, this felt like a, a real direct and visceral response to that, but it was primarily an instrumental record. And so that anger or that emotion had to be filtered exclusively through the instruments and, and, and the music. On this record, because you're working with so many singers, it's a little more palpable, like some of the emotion and the thematic nature of it, you know, what people are talking about. Absolutely. And before I was a jazz musician, I was a rocker, you know, I was into rock and roll and it was songs, you know, I, I started playing drums, playing along to records of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So that's really my foundation. Jazz came way later and instrumental became, you know, something where I could really express myself because you know, I was, I, as a matter of fact, I had a, a, a few um, rock bands in Mexico where I, I wrote uh, a lot of the material. Sometimes I would write the music, sometimes I, I would write the lyrics. So I, I always was interested in, in, in the ability to do that, but I haven't done it in, in years. And uh, I'm honestly, I'm a little afraid of what would, what would come out if, if I tried to, to write a bunch of songs. So I felt like this was a really good vehicle for me to have this master songwriters mm. uh, provide me with the material and their voices, and then let me do my thing with it. Which uh, when you think about it, it's a, it's, it's a very, uh daring thing that the artist did because uh, a song is like a like a baby you know yeah. so it's like they gave me a, their baby and i did plastic surgery on the on the baby you know? yeah incredibly <laughs> trusting also you know particularly because these are all artists whose production world and sonic world is very tied to their identity 
Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I was even surprised yeah. that, that they would agree to do this with me. And um, it, it was a very humbling experience. It was beautiful to have all this, the, the, the carte blanche of just being able to do whatever I wanted to with, with this. And in, in the case of uh, Dave Matthews, for example, he sent me the multi-track version of, of the original song. And I heard it and I was looking at everything in my computer like, oh, man, this is so cool. And then I, I was soloing each one of Dave's voices, which there were like 20 tracks. And, you know, he was doing so many crazy things uh, that I was like, oh, how can I just grab all of this and try to put it together into something that will sound like it's it's also mine. It's not just a, a regurgitated version of his song. Yes. So when I was doing that song in particular, that and I started chopping up his voices and making because his version is all in four four is super linear, and I started doing the intro in seven four, and then the verses were in nine four, and uh, the bridge was in six eight, and I really changed the order of the song. The way he had it was like a verse, and then some spoken word, and then an, like a chorus, then more spoken word. So I grabbed all the spoken word parts and put them all together towards the end so i really altered the the nature of of the song when i sent it to him i didn't hear back from him like for two weeks and i started getting really paranoid like oh man he's hating it and then one day he just called me and he said, man, it's incredible what you did. And I love it. And, and I think you should write, have writer's credit because you created like a whole song around the voices. So and that, that was really cool. Uh, and Trent Reznor's case, he, he did something new for for the record. And, and he went into the studio with Atticus Ross. And, and he sent me this this really cool thing when I opened it up. It was just a, a, a few tracks of synths, but it was like it was like an arpeggiator, a yeah. sequencer, very, um, you know, um, you could really tell where the pulse was, but then his voice was just kind of swimming around that. And I think he probably thought, because he loved Berman, Trent loved, loved Berman. That's how I met him at the Golden Globes. Mm -hmm. He was nominated for Gone Girl, I think. Mm -hmm. And I was nominated for Berman. And I think he probably thought I was going to do some really organic drums, like floating over that. But then when I started working on the song, it just started transforming into this kind of more Nine Inch Nails industrial rock thing. And it, it kind of went all in. Yeah. And uh, when I sent it to him, he was he was really blown away because I think he did not expect that yeah. at all. But he got really excited. And then he um, helped me connect with Alan Mulder, who was his engineer. And we, we finished uh, the mix together. It was a really interesting way of doing things because it was not a collaboration in the sense that I would send them a little bit of what I was doing and asking them for their opinion. I would just finish everything completely, even almost the mix, 
at least a very detailed rough mix and then I would send it and hope for for the best. And luckily, all the artists uh, were cool with the with the versions. You know, you started out by saying that your challenge to yourself was to try to draw a line through what seemed like unrelated content and right. try to unify it. And in a sense, I think looking at your career now and even your kind of artistic world, that that's a, maybe an image that applies to you in general that you come from a number of worlds. Most of us were introduced to you through one lane, you know, through your drumming with Pat Metheny primarily. Uh, And then Birdman was a huge moment for you, your solo records also. But, you know, when I think about what happened after Birdman, you had an opportunity to express yourself in other ways and maybe not in the way that people would have expected considering what Birdman was. I mean, you just said it. Even Trent Reznor thought oh, he's going to do his Birdman thing to my music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's such a, so well put the way you, you you said it, you know, because definitely for a long time, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Mexico City. I'm Mexican, 100%. I moved to the States when I was 21. And I came here to play jazz. I didn't come here to play Mexican music or to play Latin music, you know. Uh, I wanted to play a lot of things, but I came to learn jazz. So I had a, a, a big imposter syndrome for a long time, mm. trying to prove that I could play jazz, that I was worthy of playing with the, with the people I was lucky to play with, you know. And for a long time, that was my mission, prove myself. You know, my first record, having Pat and Chick Corea in it, and, and David Sanchez and, and Chris Potter and then. I, I was really trying to follow the lineage of a, of a jazz musician uh, and to pay tribute, obviously, to, to the music. But then, little by little, you know, other things started coming out. And then I think I, I saw a change in uh, my album, New Life. Sweet, which are, I, I started experimenting more with long form composition and and doing a lot more fusion really in it, and then doing a lot more uh, a lot of post production yeah. on it too. And then after Birdman, like you said, that's when I did the first Bad Ombre, which I had the studio at home and I had just unlimited resources. You know, I didn't have to to be in a studio where I was paying by the hour. I, I could just do things, you know, and uh, I found a new way of expressing myself, which was like, I'm just going to record some stuff and then, you know, push some buttons and see what happens. And, and enjoy that process of discovering new sounds. Because as a jazz musician, honestly, the way I see it now is that uh, 
sometimes you are making music a, a little bit in black and white mm -hmm. you are uh, constrained by the instruments that are generally associated with our music which are obviously limitless in, in what you can do with those instruments but when you start adding production mm -hmm. and you start adding electronics and other sounds that don't come from from these instruments all of a sudden i kind of look at music in in, in technicolor almost you know mm -hmm. there's just so many more layers that that you can play with and i've been really really influenced by some of the best produced albums ever made like so from peter gabriel mm. for example or the joshua tree or sowing the seeds of love from tears for fears or led zeppelin albums or sergeant peppers you know the the production of these albums is just glorious and that's why you can listen to them over and over and over again and never get tired because you always discover new things that are that are going on yeah so i wanted to do a record that was kind of like that where um you i could use the production the, uh, the drums as a production tool yeah which is usually not done that much i mean obviously the the, the drum sound of any record is incredibly important but you usually have just the one drum part yeah you know and it, all these records that i mentioned even uh you have layers and layers of keyboards and voices and guitars and but you have the one drum part which is you know it's a great drum part usually but why not have you know 10 drum parts yeah. going in and out with different sounds and and that's really what i wanted to do uh with this record and, and jazz is obviously the umbrella because it gave me the freedom and the the knowledge to just kind of be free with whatever it is that I'm doing nowadays. The imposter syndrome that you describe as a jazz musician, you don't seem to describe when you became a producer in the studio. Somehow the, maybe because you hadn't defined yourself publicly that way before, you it sounds like you didn't suffer in the same way when you started twiddling knobs like you did when you, you know, came to America to be a jazz musician. <laughs> right. Well, the thing with production is that one thing that I do know now because of my experiences throughout my life and, and how lucky I've been to, to be involved with the amount of incredible artists that I've been able to collaborate with is that I know what good music sounds like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think it's easier for me now to be a judge of how is it sounding like what I'm, whatever it is that I'm doing, is, is it worthy of you know what I'm, I'm 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 aspiring to and um this record is completely delineated by my strengths as a composer as a producer as a drummer but also as my is delineated by my limitations mm -hmm. you know which i think is a really interesting combination because i'm really strong at playing drums but i'm kind of suck at playing guitar you know so but i i do it you know, and I do two little notes at a time and then layer it a million times until it sounds like something that I like listening to. Yeah. So uh, that process to me is just really real. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just kind of what I can do and not, nothing else and nothing more. There's something very empowering for a virtuosic musician in one area to be very limited in another area because there's so much creativity that comes from limitation, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's also really frustrating. <laughs> like, 
like I'm hearing all this stuff and I'm like, oh my God, I cannot even play like three notes yeah. at the same time. It's, it's just terrible. But but then it yields some really interesting results. I yeah. Think. The other thing I'm thinking about is like when you started making your first solo records, it seemed clear that you did not want to make records that sounded like they were the drummer's record in the sense that you made melodic records, you made records that were filled with compositions that could be written by anybody, not just the drummer. At that moment, the focus was not to come as a drummer and reinvent the genre. It was more to speak that language with people and make your contribution within that language. In this more produced space, it does seem like you bring some of your drummer's mindset to it, like by proposing, why can't we have multiple drum sounds in the same track? Why can't the drums be used almost as an orchestral or an orchestration element? Yeah, because it's it's just so uh, limitless, I feel, because I, I'm not limited yeah. by style, yeah. which is amazing you know usually when you're doing a jazz record you know all when you hear all, all those other albums you know you hear a certain drum sound you hear a certain vocabulary you hear intention and in this it is really a completely blank slate and and i love that because then i can use the drums you know as a rock drummer or as a jazz drummer mm -hmm. or, or as a rock and a jazz drummer in the same tune yeah you know which which and that's that's one of the things that i wanted to achieve with this record just to to use all the resources that i have as a as a musician as a jazz musician that loves all kinds of music yeah that that to me was the most interesting part about it you know in your drumming there are so many things that happened even even just within the drumming that i think started to indicate that you were thinking in these terms and and in early on i mean one of the things that stood out to me was just the sound of your drums and the way you would set them up the overall layout of the way you approached the drums seemed like you were thinking a little bit outside the box yes absolutely tethered to the lineage aware of the sound of the drummers that had come before you but it always seemed to me that sound was like a very dominant part of the way you were thinking yeah and orchestration you know to me orchestration uh is is just it, it it really can make or or break you know what you're doing with the song or with a with a with a composition mm -hmm. and i learned a lot by listening to rock music mm. you know because ringo start with orchestrate you know a certain way and then john bonham would orchestrate a certain way and then Neil Paird, he was a master of orchestration with uh, with Rush, and then Stuart Copeland orchestrated in a completely different way. So, and and I loved all those those albums and bands, and I would play along to those records all the time. And I was highly, heavily influenced by by all of them. So when I started playing with, for example, the Pat Metheny Group, I was able to bring a lot of these things in because I already had all the jazz. Uh, knowledge that was needed for that gig and we were definitely playing under that umbrella mm -hmm. but I could bring all those orchestration influences into the fold because there were complex tunes with a lot of sections yeah. a lot of parts that required you know heavy backbeats and then completely floaty right cymbal playing so all those things were were really really fun for me to start bringing into my playing yeah and if you have a song where you have four different soloists and each soloist is in a completely different section and a different or uh, harmonic progression you know you really kind of start 
finding ways of just playing those parts uh, accordingly uh, yeah. on the on the drums yeah. and i think that that has become one of my my strengths to to really bring a combination of those things and now when i play live for example that we're playing all this music there's a lot of parts where i'm completely improvising and then there's some parts that are absolutely designed to i will play the same drum fill every single time yeah. because i feel like that's that has become part of the of the song you know and it's like um, a rock guitar player that would play a different solo every night on a classic tune i mean people would just they would not accept that yeah <laughs> So I, I I see the drums uh, the same way. I, I, there's space for it to be completely new every night and then space where you can really settle into the composition with the same drum parts. Okay, I want to talk about this exact divide between the space for improvisation and the space for composition because one thing that I understand about you going all the way back to being a kid in Mexico is that before you saw yourself as a drummer, you were both a gymnast and a classical piano player. <laughs> right. And in a way, when I learned that, it kind of made sense for me that, that you brought the disposition both of the physicality and the athleticism of gymnastics, the precision of gymnastics and classical music into what you do, your understanding of composition. I mean, I'm speaking on your behalf, but it all sort of was like a light that went off for me that that that's what you carried into your your musical career. Yeah, well, I mean, I started playing drums before any of that. Uh -huh. So I started playing drums when I was five. Uh -huh. And then I started playing piano after I saw Amadeus uh -huh. in the 80s. So, and so, but I had love for classical music because my grandfather used to listen to classical music during lunchtime. And then my mom was the rocker. So I had both both worlds going on. And uh, as a funny story, my mom tried to play me an Art Blakey record while I was heavily into Led Zeppelin. And uh, I did not dig it. You know, I did not dig it. But she, she told me, you know, you should check this drummer is supposed to be really good, you know. Uh, but I was just not ready at, at the time, you know. And then it took me uh, a few years to to rediscover Art Blake and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't understand it. It all started coming together way later because I studied classical music and I would analyze scores of Mozart and Bach and and Beethoven. And then I, I, I had the rock thing with my bands. Then I started playing Latin jazz and fusion, then jazz. And I used to see everything kind of like it was it, it was very segregated. Yes. Way. And now years later being much older more mature then i'm like oh it's all the same thing you know it's all good music has the same qualities so uh storytelling has be become the most important thing for me uh, and to see how mozart would develop a symphony out of you know 10 notes that has become like so important for me as a soloist when i'm improvising on the drums you know, how to develop motifs, how to tell stories, how to repeat things, how to leave space. All those things, uh, have, I've been heavily influenced by 
classical music now that I see it that way. And 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 then the the gymnastics part of it, it's also has had a, a big impact on how much I was able to push my body to do things mm. that it was not designed to do, which is kind of what you do on a musical instrument anyway. You know, how you train your body to do something that your body not necessarily wants to do in the in the beginning. And then by doing it, all of a sudden you are achieving things that you never thought were were possible so uh, to see all those things kind of come together at the same time the discipline that that music gave me to do gymnastics and vice versa you know it, it, it all i think played a, a a big part in my development for sure you have probably the straightest posture of any drummer <laughs> i've ever seen I wonder if that comes even just from the gymnastics. I think so, but uh, also partly is because I bang myself up pretty hard doing gymnastics. You know, it's a great sport, but if you do it the way I did it, and I didn't do it at, at an Olympic level, uh, Olympic gymnasts, I mean, they are messed up for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Most of them. And unfortunately, I have a, a back thing that I've oh. been dealing with for for years, and. I have to have that post posture when when I play because otherwise I'm I'm kind of in pain. And luckily, when I play, I'm totally fine. I have no no pain. Uh, but I think that pain was a combination of gymnastics and also the fact that when I was at Berkeley from '93 to '97, there were no drum sets in sight. You have to have your own drum set and bring it to every single class you were taking, which was brutal. I mean, now they they, they um, understood that that's just barbaric, and now they have drums everywhere. But back then, you were on your own. So I I think I really hurt my back just uh, in those years as well. But um, you know, that's the, that's just the way it is. Were you taking a more elaborate setup, sort of like the setup that we see you with today, or were you just playing a more traditional kind of bebop setup at that point at Berkeley? Yeah. Oh, man, uh, there's some really funny stories, because when I came to Berkeley, I was, you know, I was fresh from from being in Mexico, playing fusion and Latin jazz and rock and stuff. So that that's the sound I had in my head, you know, so I, I arrived uh, at Berkeley and I didn't know that I needed a drum set. So I came with no drums. And then I went to the practice rooms, which were empty. And I asked, so where are the drums? And they said, oh, no, no, you, nobody told you that you have to have your own. I'm like, what? I could not believe that. And, you know, my mom paid for my first semester with her credit card. I mean, it was, she was so in debt. And then here I am calling her like, mom, I need a drum set because there's no drum sets in this music school. So I bought a used kid across the street at, at Daddy's Junkie Music back then. Uh, and it was a Yamaha Power V Special, which was a total fusion drum set. And I had all my fusion shiny cymbals. And that's what I was playing with at, at the time. So on my first semester, Ron Savage, which uh, later became my, my drum teacher, great teacher, he saw me walking around the hallways and, and uh, he I had my stick bag and he said, hey man, do you play drums? I'm like, yes, why? Well, I have an advanced eight semester bebop ensemble right now and the drummer didn't, didn't show up. Do you want to play? I'm like, yeah, of course. So I went to get my humongous drum set and I started setting it all up. And first thing we played was Pent Up House. <laughs> Thank you. 
I had a very healthy ego when I arrived at Berkeley because all my friends in Mexico told me that I was great, you know, because I could play really fast. I had chops. So I started playing. And to begin with, just to give you an idea of how lost I was, where I came from, you know, you would count things on, you know, one, two, three, four. I mean, it, it was the, the downbeats were on one and three. So then all of a sudden, Ron Savage is doing this and it's like, one, two, one, two, three, four. I'm like, oh, my God, they count backwards in this country. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what was happening. And then, the, as you can imagine, the, the, the whole uh, ensemble, the, the hour and a half that was left was a complete ass whooping. You know? And then Ron started taking away all my drums and my cymbals. And he just left me with a hi-hat, a ba the bass drum, the snare drum, and the right cymbal. And he had me play like that for the whole time. And I completely understood that I could not play jazz drums at all. And then from that moment on, I started playing with a really small kid and really trying to, to make the most out of those four things and then adding things. It was a, a huge learning curve at the moment. But yeah, that was the beginning of me understanding really what it is to, to actually play music with the drums. So you had to strip it all away, back down to the essential elements, and then fill it back in according to what you needed or heard in that music. It Exactly. Well, you know, I, I played with a bebop kid for a long time. Yeah. You know, I was really committed to to sounding because of the imposter syndrome that I was telling you about. You know, I uh, all my ensembles I was playing and, uh, you know, the teachers could tell I had a really thick Mexican rock fusion accent, you know, when I was yeah. playing. So I was really trying to get rid of that. So then I completely changed everything and yeah. the quality of my symbols and the sound and and I was listening and listening to to all the grades to try to get that into my head which was really what was missing you know I hadn't been listening enough to to all that stuff yeah and then little by little I started just kind of um, by osmosis almost just having it in my head and then being able to translate it to the instrument and then I started kind of rediscovering all those other influences that I have had for a long time. And now my my kid, you know, varies a lot depending on, on what I'm playing, but I've settled on something that is a, a healthy mix of that sound from before and then all my, my jazz vocabulary. Yeah. I was thinking, I mean, I can't, what does the backline rider look like when you go abroad? You know, you have to ask for some very specific things in order to make your sound work. Well, not really, because I mean, I, I bring my my symbols, and the symbols are the source of, of most of of uh, the specific specificity of yep. my sound. And I play Yamaha drums that you can really find pretty much anywhere. Yep. But uh, one of the things that has become a signature of my sound is that I use three snare drums. Yes. I use the main snare, a piccolo snare, yeah. and then a really deep snare. So I, I and I use like basically three hi hats now that. When you think about it uh, in, in a jazz drum set, you only have the hi-hat as a dry cymbal sound, as a short cymbal sound. And everything else is really wide open, rivets. And uh, I really wanted to have more options. So so three hi-hats, then I use um, these things called ice bells, which are really, it almost sounds like like a like a mini cowbell, but it's, it's, a, it's a cymbal that I put on 
two of the of the snare drums that completely alters the the sound of the snare drum itself. But then you can also play the little cymbal on top. Mm-hmm. And and I, I've just kind of been really making my my sound a lot more modern, more contemporary by reaching out for for different sounds, stacks, you know, symbols that you stack one on top of the other to create a completely different sound. All those things are are really, really fascinating to me. And I don't use electronics when I play. So I get to extract very different sounds from the drums without the necessity of electronics so far. I think that that's one of the major changes in the sound of live drums in our lifetime is that the uh, live drums influenced the way drum machines were programmed. And then the drum machines and sampling turned around and influenced the live drummers again. So you're, you have this conversation now between the instrument and the technology. Oh, it's a complete feedback, yeah. feedback loop. loop. It's, it's happening all the time. Now where you're like, oh yeah, I, I heard that that a drummer did it, and, and then you hear it done by by electronics, and then vice versa. I, th- I think it's fascinating. You know, you described the imposter syndrome, but very quickly people heard you and encouraged you. You know, on the one hand, I think, well, yeah, I mean, some of the greatest musicians alive heard you and helped move you forward. Many of them were also immigrants. You know, I mean, you had Paquito who heard you and it, and then Danilo Perez heard you. And maybe there was also something that they recognized in you that they wanted to help make sure that you had a, a way forward here. Absolutely. And, you know, anybody that has any level of success obviously was helped by a bunch of people, you know, and, uh, and I definitely had my share. I mean, starting with my family that really supported me and, and, and helped me get to, to Berkeley and be able to study. I mean, it's just such an incredibly, incredibly uh, privileged situation Mm -hmm. to be in. Anybody that gets to choose to play an instrument and then do it well and do it for a long time. I mean, it's just uh, very privileged. Um, so I'm extremely grateful to everybody that helped me along the way. And if you notice, there just not that how many Mexican musicians can you count that are in the big leagues of jazz? This just doesn't exist, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I have a theory that it's mainly because of uh, how hard it is for us immigration wise to come here you know for because we're right next to the states obviously we are seen as a persona non gratis yeah. uh, in in many many ways and just to get a visa a tourist visa to come to new york and hang out for a week if you're a musician it's incredibly hard uh, a lot of my friends have never been able to come to new york because they they cannot get a visa which is really sad and I can assure you, if there was an easier way for Mexicans to just be around the this environment, there will be plenty more, you know, that yeah. you could mention. But uh, I'm I'm not one in a million. I'm one in a billion, you know, um, hmm. that that was able to to come here and and be able to kind of play music that was not my own you know, at a, at a very high level, because when you notice, usually Latin musicians, they're really, you know, embracing the Latin thing. It's not like I'm not embracing the Mexican thing, but it's, it's not something that defines me. You know, I'm, I'm, I am a Mexican musician and I feel like my identity is all those things, you know, that I grew up with. Uh, and, 
it, but it's not necessarily oh i have to play something that sounds intrinsically mexican yeah for me to be able to function as a high level musician and a lot of brazilian musicians come and they succeed in this in the states by playing brazilian music yes you know mixed with jazz of course you know and cuban musicians is the same thing i'm not kind of doing that well no and i think and i think in fact the relationship in the united states with latino culture is very complicated because you come here and on some level because you're tied through language and a legacy you become de facto part of a community that also includes puerto ricans and cubans and argentinians and even people from spain you all belong to a community where your uh folklore folkloric music or or the music that may be native to where you came from is totally different but you exactly. become part of the same community once you cross the border yeah and and i had the imposter syndrome in land music <laughs> as well because even though i'm a latino i didn't grow up listening and playing you know afro-cuban music yeah. and salsa i mean i listened to it a bunch and you know i liked it but i was i was playing rock yeah you know, so when I started playing with Paquito and Danilo and David Sanchez and Miguelson, all these great artists that really were, were fusing Latin music and jazz in a, in a very innovative way, you know, it, I also was really trying to belong, you know, so I really had to study really hard all those things as well in order for, for me to be accepted into the community. Uh, although it was easier in a way because my name is Antonio Sanchez. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What what advantage did you have? Well, it was uh, uh, speaking Spanish doesn't hurt, obviously, yeah. if you're going to be in that community yes. and, and having a Latin name, obviously. But they would call me, you know, the Mexican, uh, Mexicanito, because yeah. it was... It, it, I, I remember being in uh, in a few Latin bands in Boston that were all Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, and I I was like um, I was an outsider. I yeah. felt like an outsider. They treated me like an outsider because they like oh you know this guy is you know is closer to the states mm -hmm. you know than than it is to to the Caribbean in a way. So it, it was it was a strange. Uh, process and 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 i felt really isolated yeah. uh, a lot of times and very insecure about my my identity and my playing and then later i started understanding that exactly the fact that i wasn't so influenced by it, one specific kind of music gave me so many advantages in playing with people like pat Metheny yeah or chick Corea because i could do a bunch of different things yeah yeah, but it's a, it's such an odd and unique tension that you describe that because of the proximity to the United States, Mexico is punished even more, and yet because of its proximity to the United States, you as a Mexican were kind of punished within the community because you're almost American. You're practically American. They say you know, you you're kind of you punished for both. For yeah, and and. Um... You know, the way people think of Mexican music a lot of times is, you know, the boleros or yeah. the mariachi yeah. band or, or banda norteña. I mean, yeah. it's it's not that, um, you know, uh, African influence that a lot of other mm -hmm. Latin American countries have, like yeah. uh, Brazil, you know, or uh, Cuba, 
obviously Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Panama. Yeah. You know, they have a, a heavy black African yes. influence. And Mexico definitely had it, but it's a little harder to find. And Mexico is a lot bigger. Yeah. You know, than a lot of these countries. So, yeah, it was it was um uh, an, an interesting process trying to feel my way into these different scenes. First, yeah. the Latin scene, and then more the just the traditional jazz, uh, American jazz scene. So I'd like to talk just briefly about the, the I mean, it's not, hasn't been brief for you, but about the experience with Pat Metheny, because it seems like the experience with Danilo was very formative, but the relationship with Pat is so long, and right. you have been so associated with him. I mean, Pat has been one of the main figures, obviously, in, in my life. Um, we just played in Mexico City, and I realized that we played for the first time in Mexico City with him, with the Pat Metheny group, 20 years ago. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been so long that I've been um, just that I've known him now and, and just collaborated with him in a bunch of things. And, and I think the lucky thing for me was that he found somebody that he saw as an asset in all of his music mm -hmm. because before me he would have the jazz drummers and then he would have the pat metheny drummers and every project he would have a a, a completely different hmm. uh, person playing drums and when we started working together i think he he just kind of started hearing me in his music uh, which you know, was such a blessing because I got to do everything with him, starting with the Pamathini group, really big orchestral music. Trio, you know, the Quitter McBride. Ted with, with Gary Burton and, and Steve Swallow. Quartet with uh, Chris Potter and Ben Williams. I mean, It's just been really incredible to be part of, of um, his, his legacy now. Uh, I learned so much from him, from uh, just a band leading uh, standpoint, yes. how to put a set together, how he really uh, thinks almost to a fault in, in how everything is going to play out. You know, he's just a very smart individual that knows exactly what he wants. And... Um, you know, I've, I've learned also things that I don't like doing in my band leading. I have very, very different views on some things that he has. Can you speak to any of those particularly, specifically? Yeah, for example, Pat is very, uh, very specific 
in, in a lot of things that that he wants and and he doesn't have a problem telling you you know what what he wants and he's incredibly diplomatic and and how he will tell you and all of a sudden you will realize you're doing exactly what he wanted to you, <laughs> you to do without even realizing that you're <laughs> doing it you know so in the beginning we were bumping heads a little bit more because i was so new to the band and everything I I did, I think sounded really strange to them hmm. because we were playing a lot of repertoire from the Pat Metheny group, which was already played for many, many years. So when I came in and, and I started doing my own versions, you know, I was trying to stick to, to their sound, but I, it was inevitably, I sounded very, very different. So it was a, a, an adaptation period that went on for a couple of years and then Little by little, I think he started getting used to me. And then all of a sudden he, he was hearing me in, in everything. But, you know, some of the things that that I uh, differ in, in what he does and what I do now is, is just kind of letting things flow a little bit more before I start adjusting things. He, Pat really likes to start adjusting things like immediately. Um, and and I kind of uh, I'm a little looser in that way, uh, and I want to have a healthy balance between that looseness, which I think sometimes in jazz is too loose in general. Uh, when you go to see a band, or you know, sometimes I play with bands that they don't even know what tune they're gonna play for the third. You know, uh, so I don't like that. I like to be very scripted in in a lot of ways, but I also like some moments for definitely to have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think Pat is more of the school that he really likes to, to, to know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and then within that, he makes, you know, incredible things. There's an interview with Art Blakey from the eighties, where he talks about how part of his job is to understand what the musicians need every night and adjust based on what he's hearing. So he said, I might change the tempo or I might change something up in a song based on what I'm hearing from my band on a given night. The drummer has the ultimate decision-making power of how they want the band to sound. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that you start realizing the, the more you play is the amount of power you yield over the whole music, over the whole product. And, and, uh, and that's a really beautiful thing to, to have when you are really in already in, in the frame of mind that you're really doing everything to make the music mm -hmm. sound the best it can. And and I love just playing with that power on any particular night, just completely change things up. But I, like I said before, I like that unknown factor of every night and just really doing some some things that you have no idea how that that happened and then i like to have consistency because at the end of the day you're also playing a show in front of people that paid money to come see you so yes. i really like the balance between that consistency and also for for the audience to enjoy moments where it's obvious that we're we're just kind of coming up with stuff in real time it's just so important those little details and that's definitely one thing that i i got from pat i could see the impact that music the music yes. had on an audience and it was very different than other bands that i was in where all the musicians were great but the overall product was not presented in the right way yeah i think that that is 
a major factor that you have so many brilliant musicians and then you have kind of iconoclastic musicians. They become legendary in their lifetime. What is the thing that makes them legendary? Some of it is the music and the way they play it, but some of it is also in the presentation and the whole, as you say, the way the audience feels about the experience of witnessing it. And, and the fascinating thing is that, for example, you could have Pat and then Herbie, which yeah. can be incredibly loose you know, the yeah. way he, he just goes uh, about his shows. But it has an impact that is very powerful, undeniably. Yeah. So it, it's just a very different ways of approaching things. So uh, with certain kinds of music, I love the very loose approach because it yields the best results. And in, in some other context, it's very effective to know exactly when you're going to talk during the set and what you're going to say yeah. and really make it into a show, a whole presentation that is going to resonate with audience, with audiences in a completely different way. You've collaborated with a lot of people. You work with a lot of people. You're a musician who is comfortable in a lot of situations. And it's not uncommon for something like this to happen where over time, particularly drummers will find other rhythm section players that they really connect with. And there was a period where you and Scott Colley seemed to find each other all the time. And if it was going to be your project or with somebody else's project, it was like, that was the thing. I guess I'd love for you to just talk about what worked with Scott and in general, the dynamic when it comes to playing with different bass players. Funnily enough, the first time I played with Scott was with, with Pat. Yeah. And we did a gig and it's Connectedy. And uh, I remember bringing a brand new symbol that I hadn't really tried, a right symbol that was totally wrong for the gig. And uh, we suffered <laughs> a little bit because of that right symbol. But immediately, it was so easy to play with Scott, you know. And then uh, I can't remember how it, it all started happening. He, he called me to do a tour uh, with Mark Turner, uh, trio in, in Europe and then we recorded and then all of a sudden we were involved in all, all these projects at the same time of course it was in my on, on my first record but then we were playing with so many different people doing so many different records on a weekly basis I mean I remember every week would be like so what's what's next week <laughs> what's, what are we doing next week because it, it was something invariably that we would be doing together you know whereas in the studio or a tour or a gig somewhere and it just became such a, a a cool thing to just kind of bring our thing into any other situation and I think that's why people started calling us because we would kind of make the music come alive in in our own particular way, and it, and it, I think it was exciting for other people to play with us uh, as a rhythm section or as a soloist to play on top of mm -hmm. what we were doing. I think it was um, it was it, it must have been cool, you know, and that's why we we were doing it so so much. And part of it was because we found this really kind of loose but precise, but very polyrhythmic way of, of um, just interacting and uh, interplaying with other people that just kind of became automatic. We, we, we could just go into it so easily. But I have to say, then we went back to play with Pat <laughs> one time that Christian McBride couldn't do it. And Scott and I had already developed this really strong thing. And I knew that in Pat's music, that would not work so well. Mm. 
you know, I had been playing with Pat already for years and Scott hadn't. So then we did this, this game with, with Pat and Scott was doing his regular thing that we would normally do. And then I wasn't going there, you know, with, with him this time. And he would look at me like, what's, what's going on? Yeah. And then at the end of the game, he told me, man, you play so different with Pat. I'm like, I know it's just, you know, Pat's syntax, his vocabulary yeah. is, is just very different. And uh, I've learned really to play within that vocabulary. And, and I know what he likes and what he doesn't like and what he feels like he wor it works for his music. And that's why I'm, I'm playing so different. But to this day, I mean, every time Scott and I do things, it's, it's still just so malleable the way yeah. we, we play it. It's so much fun. What was the deal with the symbol that you brought to that first gig? What kind of symbol was it? Man, it was a vintage A symbol, like really old, that when I played it at home at, at lower volumes for a little bit, it sounded great. Uh, but it it had this really strong overtone mm. that I hadn't discovered until I started playing it harder with, with people that it, it was just kind of a nightmare, <laughs> unfortunately. And that was the only right symbol I had that day. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was brutal. So in this period where you're playing with Pat and you're developing your own projects and you're working with so many wonderful artists, you became famous for your solo concept also. And this conversation that we're having today around storytelling and narrative and motivic development in your soloing, you know, that goes all the way back. But there came a kind of magic moment when composition and improvisation really aligned. And I would love for you to talk about just the experience and the process of Birdman, how it came about and then how you approached it. Well, the way it came about is because Iñárritu, the director, he is a, a big Pat Metheny fan. Ah. And he saw us playing The Way Up in 2005 in LA. And I met him afterwards. I didn't know that was him. And I started talking to him and you know, I thought I oh, was a nice guy, but I was kind of, kind of trying to get back to the dressing room. And uh, uh, but he kept talking and talking. I was like, man, it's so great that a Mexican is playing with Pat. I'm also from Mexico. And then uh, I asked him, so what do you do? And he said, well, I direct films and commercials. But I thought, you know, we were in L.A. and everybody. Everybody does probably, that. Yeah. yeah, probably does that. So I wasn't really impressed with that. But then I asked him, so anything I, I would have seen? And then he said, well, I did. This one called Amores Perros and 21 Grams. And of course, I, I felt horrible that I didn't recognize him, but I just gave him a hug. It's like, man, I'm a huge fan. And that was that. And then years later, out of the blue, he called me. I mean, we stayed in touch, uh, not nothing word related, but he would invite us uh, for some of his premieres here in New York. Mm. Pat and I would go uh, and hang out. And it was super cool. But then one day he called me out of the blue and he told me I'm working on this new thing. It's going to be a dark comedy and comedy and rhythm have to be hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I think drums would be great for this. So would you like to to do it? And of course. And, and the elation became terror, like in two seconds after I said yes, because I was like, well, this is this is not some little movie. You know, this is going to be like a like a Hollywood film. And then he sent me the script and he told me it was a dark comedy. But if you see if you've seen the film, you know, it's a very it's a strange film. Yeah. And, and the way it read in the script, it was even weirder. So I read it and I finished it and I realized I did not even laugh once. 
you know, but I and I thought, man, this is supposed to be a dark comedy, and then you're gonna put drums on top of this. I mean, this is gonna be a disaster. I mean, I I really didn't think what to what to think of it because I didn't really quite get it, and and I wasn't a, a, like an experienced a script reader. Yeah. Either you know, it's, it's not like reading a book. There's no context on on almost anything, mm. so you really have to imagine things. And and I wasn't good at that, so I, I didn't really get the script. But I kept thinking, he knows what he's doing, obviously. So I'm just gonna go with the flow. And then he asked me for some demos. He said, "Can you send me something, you know, pensive, something aggressive, something powerful, something angry?" And then I recorded a bunch of stuff and sent it to him. But it was very, uh, what I recorded was very planned, was very premeditated. You know, was I, it solo was, drums at that point? It was still it was, solo. It was solo drums because uh, he wanted solo drums for sure. But I kept thinking of themes. You know, maybe I should write a rhythmic theme for Michael Keaton and one for Ed Norton. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was my my way of trying to to go about it because I really had no guidance from him in in the beginning. And then I sent him the demos, and then a couple of days later, he wrote back and was like, "Man, these are great. I love them, but they're exactly the opposite of what I'm looking for." And I was like, "Wow. <laughs> so, what do you think uh, we need to do?" You know, he said, "You know, it's just I really want you to improvise. You know, I want it to be really organic." So when he said that, I was like, "Well, maybe I just, just need to play. You know, just kind of be myself." And uh, we got together in the studio. In uh, actually Avatar now back to Power Station mm -hmm. in New York, and uh, we worked off of the script. We did the whole movie with the script, uh, and he would describe the scenes to me in great detail, and then have me improvise. You hadn't seen any footage. You weren't looking at the footage. There was no footage. They hadn't uh, started filming the, the the film yet. So I asked him to sit in front of me and to imagine the scene at the same time so that when he saw the next face of the scene in this long sequences that he would just raise his hand so that i could understand oh that means that he, the, he opened the door and now he's walking through the hallway you know so we did the whole movie like that which was very liberating because i didn't have to to concentrate on a specific uh image it, it was just what i was imagining and just guiding myself uh, with my instincts and um, then he grabbed those demos and superimposed them on the rough cut of the film once they shot it. He told me that they even rehearsed on the set with some of the beats just so that the actors could, could get used to the vibe, which I thought was really, really smart. And then um, they brought me to LA, they showed me what they did, and then I redid everything based on what had worked best. Uh, what he didn't like, then obviously we changed, and then we were looking at the film now. So he would have a lot more specific instruction. Like, okay, when you see this, can you give me something big? And then, you know, please mark this movement with something. The whole thing was like a day and a half. I mean, it was super, super quick because it was all one or two takes. And usually, you know, when you're a jazz musician, you've been training all your life to have this, uh, you know, short reaction time in in what you're you're getting and then what you're playing on top of so you know i i kind of understood that it was not that much different from anything mm. i'd done before except that 
I was just reacting to to other things. But my reaction time and me, my reaction instincts were just kind of based on on things that I've done my whole life, which I think that's why it worked because I didn't do anything that I didn't really know how to do. It was, it was, he really brought me brought my world into his. Yes. Was, so you would have been accustomed to reacting to another musician in the band to Pat or whatever it is to what the needs are and the requirements are of the moment and then you would just be present that's what you did but you were responding to the film rather than to other musicians exactly I mean I it quickly became clear to me that that was the only way this was going to work yeah and it did did you have a sense while you were doing the project that this could be a pivotal moment in your career that this could be something that you would do more of in the future or that it could change your reputation and you know any of that kind of stuff i knew uh, a lot of people were going to see it but the thing is i have to be honest with you when when i saw the rough cut with my demo superimposed i i didn't get it you know i didn't get it because i saw it in a little tv in some studio in in la with crappy speakers and my drums didn't sound that good there was no editing it was really rough there were no credits it it was just like if i gave you a copy of my of a rough mix of my record where Mm -hmm. all the levels are all over the place you know you're just not gonna feel the impact that i want you to have so i remember inyaritu left me in that room for two hours, I saw the thing, and then two hours later, he came back and like, so what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, great, you know. But <laughs> I really didn't didn't get it in, in the moment. So I was like, I was a little because you know, there's such a fine line between a movie doing great or being a flop. Yes, you know that I I was very afraid that this was going to be something that people would not get and would not like. You know, because it's a it's a weird movie with a weird yeah. score. You know, so I, I was uh, I was I was afraid, but I kept thinking he knows what he's doing. And then I saw that the movie opened at the Venice Film Festival, and there was a whole article about the film score. And I got an, an award for best film score there. I'm like, what? Yeah. I mean, I just could not get it because I still had the rough cut in my head. I never saw the finished thing, and I was on tour. And the movie opened in the States and I was in Asia and I couldn't watch it. And I kept like reading all these reviews that, oh man, the score is so original. And I was like, wow, hmm. people are actually digging this. Yeah. And then I came back to the States and Tana, my wife, uh, we, we went to um, a movie theater in Chelsea at two in the afternoon to watch it. You know, I was so curious. And then it started. And I had never heard my drums and, you know, quadraphonic sound yeah. in the theater. So uh, to begin with, I was like, what? I mean, I just could not believe the sound they got out of the drums. And also the first thing that you hear in the movie is my voice in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, it, it was just so shocking to me as things started to, to appear. And then all of a sudden, all the letters with the drums, you know, I was just just floored by by how amazingly original everything was. And and then I saw the movie, of course, and I saw it a couple of times and I I got it. You know, like, oh, my God, you know, it's it's what he did is really, really brilliant. So it it didn't occur to me that it was going to have that impact. And then when it started, I I was. just kind of really 
confused in in the beginning yeah. by the amount of attention it got and it, it it's also was a weird thing for me because it's not like it, i got all this attention for something for one of my records or something that i was doing on a daily basis i got it for this thing that is just a one-time thing that i did and all of a sudden everybody's talking about it so it was confusing for me we like okay what uh, what's next after this you know and i met Hans Zimmer and I met Trent Reznor and I met uh, all these incredible film scores that were like, yeah, man, this is this is huh. this is the shit. You should keep doing this. I'm like, really? I mean, uh, so the it was a blessing and a curse because a b blessing for the obvious reasons, but then a curse because it was such a specific thing that a lot of other directors could not see me in their movie because it was so iconic to do drums that way in for for birdman that if you did that for any other movie it would sound like a copy so it was it was a struggle for a while to try to to get more work in that realm because if you didn't want drums why the hell would you call me yeah so i've been having to prove myself over and over that I can do other things because obviously the scope of vision of uh, Hollywood is very limited. You know, that's what I did. Well, that's the drum guy. Yeah. You know, so to get out of that has been 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 really hard. And even though I've done some things that are really really cool, doing film scores is hard because you are making music for somebody else that has the final word on what you're saying. And a lot of times, in the case of Iñárritu, it was easy because I was only dealing with them. But uh, TV stuff that I've done, sometimes I've had to deal with five different people with five different opinions. Yeah. And I kind of have to figure out how to make everybody happy. And it's it can be really exhausting and not that rewarding yeah. in the end because your work is so diluted by the end that um that i'm like you know I, i'm not sure it's worth uh, it. If, if, it it's worth it yeah, yeah i remember there was some kind of controversy around the oscars when it came to the birdman experience like there was some implication that the score wasn't eligible to be nominated for some strange reasons that you felt that maybe it was political maybe there was even a kind of discrimination that was going on that prevented you from getting a nomination. So despite whatever your initial apprehension about the score may have been, by the time the Oscar nominations came around, you were hopeful and interested in being nominated. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way it happened, it was a little dicey, yeah. you know, because um, they first came up with uh, a reason for it being eliminated that was that there was more pre-recorded music or incidental music than original music yeah. which was not true mm. you know the, a recount was was done and it was definitely more original music mm. so then that was submitted and then they came back with a second reason which mm. was that the original music was too diluted by the incidental music yeah so you know Iñárritu was so upset you know, and so was I, because I was like, you know, I'm not going to have many more shots at, mm -hmm. at an Oscar nomination, obviously. Um, but to me, it seemed like they were really guarding their thing. Yes. You know, this this guy, you know, drums as a 
you know, are we going to reward this with the, with an Academy Award nomination when there's this humongous orchestral scores that take months to make? You know, I don't think they were comfortable with that idea. Yeah. You know, and and to make that move that would maybe open things to to a different way of doing things that is not what they think is you know film scoring. Yes. Um, so. I mean, the way I, I always phrase it is like, okay, what do you remember from the score? Do you remember the classical music or do you remember the drums? You know, and most of the time it's going to be the drums. So that proves to me that it wasn't that diluted by by the by the incidental music. Your drums on that score became a shorthand and a reference for a lot of other people when they talk about what they're looking for. You know, and I've seen I. I have spent a lot of my life in the commercial world doing jingles. And that score was put up against everything from bank commercials to pharmaceutical commercials. I mean, there was, you know, a period of a couple of years where you would, I would get a film to look at to, that where I'm supposed to score it and it would be your drums. And it was every creative in the advertising industry suddenly had the brilliant idea to do a commercial with solo drums on it. Oh, believe me, I did my share. I did so many Japanese commercials <laughs> during the next year, which was awesome. I yeah. mean, I, you know, that I don't think that will ever come back. Yeah. <laughs> but but that was uh, something that I started noticing very quickly, too. It was like, oh, my God, there's just so many drums all of a sudden everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I hear you say that that's a part of your world that as long as it aligns with who you are creatively and essentially with your vision of what you want to be doing, then you continue to do it, but it's not your priority. But it does raise the question of how do you think about organizing, you know, your time and your career? I just turned 51. I I feel like I have less time mm. ahead of me than behind me mm. now. And I kind of want to use it very wisely. Um, I feel like I have so much that I want to do still, but these projects that I'm embarking on take a lot of time. This album, I mean, it, it took three years to make. And I kind of like this direction because I think this kind of records, people get more out of them. Hmm. Uh, you know, I've noticed how, how much people listen to this record as opposed to other my, my, some of my other records because there's just so much more... I mean, to begin with, they're a lot more accessible, Yeah, you know, which, which I like. I, I love th that it's accessible, but I like also that I I, I want I wanted to have depth. I, I wanted to have a really high production value, a lot of musicianship. So to combine all those things, where a musician can be like, "Oh man, I really dug dig this," and then your aunt can be like, "Oh man, I love that tune." To me, that's that's gold. Yeah, you know, I and I really want to keep exploring that combination of accessibility, depth, message, and, and musicianship. That is really hard. You know, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of brain power also and to, mm. to just think about, okay, what's, what's the right next move? I have to admit that uh, I was expecting a little bit more love from like um, mm -hmm. media publications you know, because, you know, what other drummer do you know that has done this? I, I really don't don't think there's ever been a record of this nature 
with those names. I mean, for a jazz musician to get those names into a record, all in the same record, I mean, it wasn't easy. And I did it all myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't get any help from anybody. Uh, like, okay, my label is going to get in touch with Dave. No, it was not like that. It was all by texts and emails, you know, trying to to reach people. So it's been a little disappointing that some, like, maybe I've seen five reviews of the record, yeah. if, if at all, five, six reviews. So it seems like maybe the jazz people were like, oh, well, this is not jazz. So then we're, we're not going to review it. And because I'm a jazz guy, you know, Rolling Stone is not going to pick it up to review it. You know, even though I was hoping that because of the names, at least people would be curious to to review it. But it hasn't happened. So things are difficult. I just finished the U.S. tour and it was hard. You know, it was hard. It's, it's hard. You notice how hard it is for people to come out. Yes. Right now and pay money to see music. And, and we're at the bottom end of the disposable income chain, you know. People don't seem to have a problem paying 500 bucks to see Bad Bunny, I know. Uh, but to come and pay 30 bucks to see us play and have a couple of drinks, it seems harder. And the people that come are really there. Yeah, you know, they 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 really love it and 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 it's great. But it's a very perilous time for yeah. for touring musicians right now, uh, of my level, but of any level, we have very little production. But bands that have a lot of production. They, the expenses are through the roof and they can make it happen. You know, I've seen established bands that are canceling tours left and right because you're losing money. And and it's it's um, it's a scary, it's a very scary time to be out there touring and with the flights and cancellations. And people are not really buying tickets in advance. So uh, promoters are freaking out all the time that how is it, the show is going to do. Like we played in in uh, Santa Cruz, and right before the gig, the promoter came and told me, "Oh, we're probably gonna have a half a house." So I was like, oh, "Okay," it was packed. Hmm. He had no idea. All all these people showed up, you know. So that's the problem: not to be able to gauge how you're gonna be doing, and and also it's hard to gauge where you are in terms of, are you know, are people really digging you at the moment, or do you need? to make a change for people to to come and be more curious about what you're doing it's it's kind of uh, disconcerting right yeah. it's just disorienting because after covid everything kind of changed you know people's attitudes changed economy changed culture changed and i really feel like um, post covid all the mediocre crap that was really popular kind of even got bigger and then all creative music that was already struggling before COVID just kind of got even pushed down even more. Yeah. So it's it's a very hard time. And, and I've been really thinking a lot about this. And, and I even talk about this during my gigs. You know, I tell people, people, you know, thanks for being here because yeah. it's really rough yeah. right now. And, and we appreciate your presence. And, and I feel that there's so much crap out there uh, that is so popular that what we're doing here, you know, audience and us is kind of the resistance, you know, we're really trying to to do things with a lot more depth, a lot more thought. Yeah. And um, we might not have a huge 
production and you know big screens, but what we're the musicianship that we are trying to convey here on this stage, you know, is is world class, and and I hope people can appreciate it, and they they usually do, you know. Um, so it's 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 a perilous time, but but uh, it's also comforting to see how people react to the things that you're doing when when you're putting all of it behind it. It is an act of resistance. I, I agree with you. And it's kind of funny that we're in a position and in a place now where if you showed up just to give clinics, you probably would not have the same concerns. We're in a space like I look even on YouTube and you look at what are the most not just of you, but of so many musicians, the most watched videos of musicians are often the ones where they describe what they're doing technically, or they talk about the gear, or they talk about the process in some way. And there's all these people that obsess over it. And then they put out the video EPK behind their record and people don't watch it. Exactly. You know, so we're in this weird exactly. cycle right now with what musicians, what space they occupy. Yeah. And, and you, you know, I can see it on Instagram, yeah. you know, what I post and what gets a response and what doesn't is like wow man it's, it's just so hard to to get the music across to to more people you know and i've been a little tired of the loop that i've been in um playing the same places making the same amount of money playing those places unfortunately it's a really hard time uh, yeah. right now because we're trying to get back into it but things are not the same yeah. You know, uh, what we're paying, what we're getting paid hasn't really gone up, but what we're paying has gone up through the roof. Yes. So yes. It's, it's just a bad combination right now to, yes. to be doing this. And and making this record was also my attempt of, you know, trying to reach more people by by making music that is uh, a little bit more, more accessible and also that it doesn't necessarily can be put in a box so yeah. easily, you know. And that, unfortunately, also has uh, its its, uh, uh, its downfalls because you know in the Grammys, you yeah. know I, I was I had no idea where to put it. We put in some um, uh, like for example alternative record yeah. because it, to me that's kind of what it is. But yeah. I mean the people that are in those categories are Bjork and Radiohead. So yeah. what chances do I have? Uh, you know, I was kind of in between a bunch of things. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, this yeah. this year, I got no love <laughs> yeah. from the Grammys. Well, I want to finish, I guess, because I know that this is a big part of your life and it is something that does give you a lot of love. I want to finish by talking about Tana and her project because she's a big part of your creative life and your personal life, your wife. And I, and I know you're a big part of her creative life also. And one of the projects that you did and was a kind of, not a casualty, but suffered a little bit because of COVID was her solo record, which I think came out like the week that the world shut down or something like that. It came out the week of yeah, COVID. It came out March 20 something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous, the timing. Yeah. I mean, Tana, my relationship with her has been really incredibly beautiful, personally and, and creatively. In the beginning, we tried to keep things separate, but then it, it just started happening. You know, I started hearing her, her voice and some of my on, on my material. It started with New Life in, in the main track. I was like, man, it would sound so beautiful with a with a voice. And she came downstairs to where I was doing it, and she sang it. I was like, oh my god, this this is this is it. And then I started hearing her voice a lot more on on my migration stuff, all that material. She's all over the Meridian Suite and Lines in the Sand. 
And then when this project came about, um, of course, I, I wanted her to be on one one of the artists on the record, and because I also respect her tremendously as a composer and yeah. as a, a conceptualist and and um, producer. Also, she's become really really good. Uh, so I wanted to have her, and then live, she's singing all this material in mm -hmm. English and in Spanish, you know, and and she's become a, a whiz with uh, with effects mm -hmm. and pedals and and stuff. So she has grown like so much in the last few years, and of course her album Ona, which was nominated for the for a Grammy for um, best vocal jazz album. You know, it's all original material. She wrote it all. She, I helped her. You know, with uh, with production and stuff. Um, and it was the first time that she started producing because she wanted me to help her. And I told her, I just don't have the time right now because I was doing lines in the sand. Mm -hmm. But I'll teach you. You know, Pro Tools basics. Wow. You know, in two days. She started just doing everything, all the editing herself, and and you know she came out with this uh, amazing record, and and we've had a relationship where where I'm her most trusted set of ears for what she's doing, and she has become mine too. You know, if I do something and then she comes and hears it, and I can see her face, if it if it doesn't pass the smell test, then I know I have to keep working on it. You know, and if she's really really excited about it then then i have something good i mean she's got a really really good set of set of ears and she's also very eclectic in her musical tastes yeah so i i i um just really thankful that our relationship has evolved into this very dynamic creative thing that we're i'm playing with her band and she's playing with my band i hope people don't get tired of of us together all the time but i in this particular set of um songs from shift you know the the live show has become really a blast you know yeah. she's really embodied all this this people and but made it her own completely all these songs and she's i, I told her this is a good opportunity for us to leave our jasper zonas and co completely become other people yeah and she's all over the stage you know just yeah. uh you know becoming kind of like a rock star uh, yeah. and and it's just great to watch it, it has become very entertaining and and the, i think the beautiful thing is that it also has the the substance and she's such a, an accomplished musician and singer of course yeah. and and it's just a, a joy to to be on the road with her and we have such a great understanding that um, I think some people look at us like, wow, you guys don't get tired of just being together all the time. And like, incredibly enough, we we don't, you know, I, I have so much of a better day off on the road <laughs> if I'm with her yeah. and, and we hang, we yeah. go and hang out somewhere than if I'm by myself yeah. completely. Yeah, you know? of course. I'm glad that we finished there because I, you know, the, it's times are dark and there are challenges, but you always have to find the silver lining and the, you know, a little bit of light coming through the windows. Thank you. And, and uh, you know, one thing, like, for example, we were just in, in South America doing all this uh, gigs with Pat Metheny and, and I took it upon myself to to reach out to local musicians and ask them if they could organize like a meeting, like a hang, a talk. Really? Where, where I would just get together with, you know, 100 or 200 musicians and we would just talk, you know, and I, I started calling it group therapy mm -hmm. because we would just be talking about, you know, how COVID felt, how, we've, how we're feeling now. Where do we draw inspiration from? Why are we doing what we're doing? Because sometimes the 
light at the end of the tunnel seems very distant and dim in these times. And uh, a musician in Latin America, you know, why am I going to practice eight hours a day if all I have is a little restaurant gig at the end of the day? Yeah. So we were talking about all, the, all those things, how to grab, how to get inspiration and how to inspire each other. And, you know, I, I kept bringing it back home to, you know, we're the resistance, you know, we're yeah. the counterculture right, yeah. right now. It's, it's very, the, the, what we do is so specific, but it's so difficult yeah. and, and it yields so such reward spiritually you know, when, when it's done right, that virtue is its own reward, kind of, you know, and, and uh, I think we, we would end up those talks feeling, you know, inspired and, and um, re-energized by, by what we do, because it's easy to lose track of like, okay, why, why am I doing this? You know, you're kind of on, a, on a, on a hamster wheel yes. and you're like, just, you're just doing it. But when you start, just looking at how privileged we are to be doing it, you know, and even though things are hard, we're still so freaking lucky to be doing it. And I, I also try to remind myself of that and to remind them of, yes, we are going through rough times, but man, you all chose to do this. You know, you got the power to choose to play an instrument, to practice. You had family that supported you. Mm -hmm. You have to have, you know, uh, economically, speaking yes. you have to have status in order to pick an instrument and just go with it for the rest of your life so remember how privileged you are and 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 just do things right because it's it's just so rewarding to do them that way you know yes. and and we we all ended up um feeling energized by by that which was very nice well, Antonio Sanchez, thanks for energizing me today with this conversation and, and really for taking time. I, I appreciate it. And, and thank you for your great questions, man. I, I, I love the conversation. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.